Hello and welcome to the Embassy of Ireland to Canada podcast series. Today's podcast is a replay of a conversation between Ambassador Eamon McKee and Mary Durkin from the Anna Livia Association in Toronto, discussing the women behind Ulysses. This was filmed in February 2022. We hope you enjoy. D.E. Recorder, welcome friends to this uh, very special St. Bridget's Day. Um, we're going to discuss uh, the women behind James Joyce and how they encouraged his achievement, and I'm delighted to be joined by Mary Durkin um, from the Toronto Bloomsday Festival, but also uh, a great Dublin woman, uh, grew up, as she says, in, in, in James Joyce territory in and around uh, Dublin city centre, a uh, particular focus for Joyce, of course, he, he moved all around Dublin, but the, the core of Dublin and, and indeed Jewish Dublin around Clownbasson Street and the South Circular Road and Ratgar and, you know, Drughandra too. Um, but uh, my pleasure to, to, to talk to Mary about this subject and, and, and very appropriate, I think, for, for Bridget's Day. But uh, Mary, before we kick off, do you want to just say something about Dublin as you and I remember it? I mean, I, when I was young, I do remember that the kind of the dealers, antique dealers and so on, Jewish uh, like Dankers and from Basel Street. Um, and, you know, when I read Ulysses and I read Joyce in a portrait, it kind of brings back that Dublin that I picked up from my grandfather and grandmother and the way they kind of their attitudes and the way they spoke and the way they lived. You must have picked up some of that, too, from your from your time in Dublin. Yeah. And you must remember, I was growing up in Dublin um, earlier than you. I was growing up in Dublin in the 50s and 60s. So, um, yes, I, I grew up uh, just around the corner from the uh, from the synagogue, actually from my bedroom looking out. I could see over the canal into uh, the Jewish cemetery. Mm-hmm. And so when I discovered Ulysses, that was one of, uh, of, of its enormous appeals to me was that this was, this was my Dublin because when I grew up, um, the synagogue there was very, very active and they were Hasidic Jews. And I remember, and we went, I went through um, the Jewish area um, Greenville Terrace and all of that to get to school. Uh, I went to school at the presentation of Black Pits and then along Clumbrazel Street. So Clumbrazel Street, Dolphin's Barn, uh, with all of these are referenced, like Rehoboth Terrace. This was all uh, St. Kevin's Parade uh, was where uh, we had uh, family friends. And so I, one of my memories from that time is myself and my friend, Dolores Ryan. I was fascinated by the Jewish community because it was the only community that was different in, yeah. in, in Dublin. I mean, every, it was all very homogeneous apart from that. Anyway, so I was around, it was after we made First Communion. Um, so uh, one Saturday morning, we saw a wedding going into the synagogue. So after the wedding party went in, the two of us saw that the side door was open. So we snuck in up the stairs and at the top. I still remember the uh, the wooden rows of seating. And then right down in the center under a canopy, you could see the bride and groom. That's as far as we got because we were marched out by the scruff of the neck and told not to come back. And then Dolores and I, you know, we resolved that we wouldn't tell anybody, not even in confession. That that was yeah. <laughs> Sounds like what you call a bit of skite. But, um, you know, we'll come back to Joyce's fascination with, with the kind of the Jews of Dublin, uh, most of whom, as we know, were Litvak Jews. But, you know, the women in his life, I mean, um, they are an extraordinary source of support for him. 
beginning with uh, his mother. I mean, he was very fond of his father, uh, John, but he, he, he really did rely on the mother. So the mother was, a, was, a, was you know, uh, um, from uh, a Murray uh, from Longford, but the father was from Joyce. And I think he shared his father, father's bias for, uh, for the Joyce, Joyce's, the Joycean roots in County Galway, as opposed right. to mother. But nonetheless, his mother seemed to be um, a source of real stability for Joyce as he was growing up and as the family were going down socially economically because of the father's, you know, drinking and lifestyle and, and lack, of, lack of employment and so on. And so, so his mother with what, 10 surviving children, uh, yeah. boys and six girls, she was an extraordinary woman in many ways to, to tolerate uh, the, uh, her husband and, and, and look after all the kids in extraordinarily difficult circumstances. Yeah, he does say, there's one thing that he says, amor mattress, like uh, mother's love, it's the only true thing in life. And I think that was his experience. And when you see his mother, like the mother that you see in portrait at the Christmas dinner scene, where things were the very middle class and it seems she was very musical, played piano and that, but she yeah. seemed like a wonderfully warm, caring um, uh, woman. And I mean, when he was in, uh, when he was studying in, in Paris at university, um, I mean, they had come way down in the world. They had gone from very nice middle-class uh, living, you know, and then step by step by step, they lost, uh, they went lower on the, on the social rung. But he would send her these letters, you know, saying how he was starving 24 hours without food or whatever. And she'd scrape together, you know, enough money. And you can just imagine how difficult it was to send him a money order for like eight shillings. And he mentions it as in the second chapter as he's walking along Sandy Mount Strand after seeing her, uh, thinking about her um, her death at the, the deathbed. But he 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 was aware of the sacrifices that she made i mean she was her he, he was her firstborn and uh there seemed to have been an incredibly strong bond uh, uh and that she took care of him she would always tell him what he should eat and uh, worried about him you know mm -hmm. that he for that he would get enough rice enough food for the brain work that he was doing right. so she had it seems that it, both the father and the mother seem to see their oldest son, James, as they seem to know intuitively that he really had a particular gift or that he was extraordinary in some way because yeah. he really got, um, you know, like an education and a way of, they interacted with him in a way that I don't think the others, certainly not the younger ones, but even Stanislaus um, mm. didn't didn't seem to have the same um, kind of nurturing that he got. Yeah, there's no sense that the mother tried to force him into anything. I mean, you, you often have the Irish mother, you don't want the son to be a priest or a banker or a civil servant. There's never any sense of that. Joyce is a very autonomous individual um, from, from the get-go and is encouraged, I think, as you, you're right. He's certainly encouraged by his father and mother to believe uh, that he is something special and, yes. and they, they do look after him uh, extraordinarily well despite the increasing penury you know because I mean uh, uh, as somebody said you know his father you know uh, bred children as quickly as he did death I mean he basically spent himself into poverty something that Joyce himself uh, picked up you know um, yeah. 
But uh, you mentioned uh, Ulysses there in the second chapter. It's an extraordinary painful uh, death for his mother from cancer. And Joyce is there pretty much throughout it. Um, but, but he won't bend at the end. He's decided to leave religion behind. Yeah. And even though he loves his mother, he doesn't, he cannot, you know, bend the knee, as it were, right at the end, even though she's on her deathbed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He said, like, um, it's in the, 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 the first uh, chapter two where he's, he relives in detail this horrendous death, like the, the whole sickness that she's dying from cancer and her eyes staring at him, wanting him to pray. And he screams at no mother let me be and let me live. It's like, I have got to, I've made the break and now I have got to, if I, you feel that he, if he gets sucked in again, he just, you know, may never be able to walk away. So it's, it's, he's, yes, he is, I guess he's fighting for his artistic, not just his artistic soul, but his, his own individuality and what he has come to realize. And he has made a decision and that decision is, is, beyond reproach it cannot be it cannot be changed but he does he suffers enormous guilt I think because and of course Buck Mulligan um you know goes on and on about you know you couldn't kneel and pray when your mother asked you you know like you know you killed your mother like oh you killed your mother and you can't wear gray pants like whoa you know um so and tells him that the jesuit strain is injected in the money it's it's in the fearful jesuit yeah so he's it there's all and of course what uh is doing is he's articulating the guilt that he feels. Why couldn't I? Of course. And then as he's walking along by himself later on um, across Sandy Mount Strand, and he's thinking all things philosophical, you know, mm. and ontological and every other one. And he, um, and then he's thinking about drowning and how he, you know, he, he would never be able to drown someone. But then this line just comes up and he, he, he thinks, I couldn't save her. Mm-hmm. Just one line in the middle of everything else. So you know that it's bubbling away underneath the whole guilt. And he carries that guilt throughout mm-hmm. um, Ulysses. And then it appears again in the Bella Cohen scene when they go the red light district towards the end. Mm-hmm. And he's there absolutely. I mean, he's, you know, half cocked or more than he's been drinking all day. Mm-hmm. And in the middle of it, as they're dancing around, then all of a sudden this image of his mother comes up. I mean, this it's absolutely haunting. She's gaunt, gray clothes, a, a, a torn bridal veil, orange mm-hmm. blossoms, no, you know, no eyes in the socket. And then and she's, you know, all she wants to do is get him to repent. Oh, sacred heart of Jesus, save mm-hmm. him from the fires of hell. Repent, repent, repent. And again, he has to make a stand. And this time it's even stronger. It's like non-servium. I will not serve, which is the words of Lucifer. You know, it's like, I will not serve. So it's, and then smashes the chandelier and that's the end of that. But it's a very, very, very powerful scene. It's like, it shows the, it also shows the strength of the bond that he had with his mother, that it it's taking this amount of psychic energy 
to separate himself from what she believed in. Yeah. And the because church. Her, her death comes after, you know, uh, a, a kind of that crisis uh, in his life where, you know, he has an encounter with a prostitute. I think he's, he's only about 14 years of age. Now, yes. of course, prostitutes do feature a lot in his literature and his thinking. And, uh, you know, Dublin was a barracks town with a large British army, uh, which generated a you know, very large you know, yeah. population of prostitutes. Um, and indeed, the, the life of a prostitute was, was, was pretty rough, to be honest, you know, and not much uh, protection from the police, but also not much interference from the police because the police were afraid the army would go after them if they, they bothered their girls. But he has, at a very young age, this guilty sexual encounter with prostitute, uh, joins the sodality of the Virgin Mary at the same time, and he goes through a very pious period. So this is, you know, from 14, 16, 17, 18, he's going through this uh, metamorphosis where he tries, in a way, I think, to, to suppress his sexuality and, and appetites, um, but ultimately can't do that. And so when he emerges from this process, it's then his mother dies, which is, in a way, the test. Um, but he is, he, you know, the, he, he is aware of that dimension to relations with women, the, the sexuality, the prostitution, the, and that availability in Dublin at the time. Yeah, but when you think about his, his social circle, like if he wanted to explore his sexuality, the like most of the women that he would have that he would encounter would be very nice middle class girls. You know, I mean, he right. was, you know, the the sisters of the boys he went to, you know, um, Clongos or Belvedere with. So with the Chihis and so on. Yeah. And so there was no, absolutely no way you wouldn't get to first base with, mm -hmm. you know, these nice girls. So. I guess the thing is, though, it always struck me that 14 is, seems an incredibly young age to like, just to have the, the, the self-confidence or the guts to buy yourself to go out along by the canal yeah. and figure out how you pick up a prostitute. You know, I know. Most, most guys would run a mile. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you're terrified. But then obviously, again, you know, he had extraordinary luck in the people, particularly the women, but also a lot of the men that he encountered. It was like, you know, so he probably, yes, there was all this guilt, you know, on sin. And of course, it was the big sin, mm -hmm. um, still is, in, you know. Um, but the fact that he, that he would actually, you know, just go for it and say, mm -hmm. but I think that, as I was saying, the, I think the women probably, because he was so young, were very nurturing and probably were, it probably was a wonderful way to be introduced to um, sex would be, because I would imagine that these women were very um, loving towards him and definitely in, in a portrait, you get that feeling that they were, um, that they were very caring. Caring, yeah. I mean, his his aunt Josephine uh, on his mother's side was yeah. a huge support to him as well, and and you get that from the letters he writes to her that he he had a, a, a mature and adult relationship with her. You know, he got a lot of sustenance from that, and and so in a way, probably his encounter with the prostitute does two things: it 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 it, it liberates him at one level, and then sets up this tension with the Catholic Church, with its its belief and its demands, which ultimately <coughs> he rejects. But is this is really the engine of his aesthetic, isn't it? 
Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. And I think that um, if he hadn't, you just wonder. It's like, I think that because he had explored his sexuality, that when he does, when he encounters Nora, mm. it's that he knows himself. Yeah. He knows himself well enough to recognize what an extraordinary woman uh, Nora is and how liberated she is sexually, that she doesn't have, she doesn't suffer from that guilt thing, which he did. I mean, the, the confession scene in Portrait where he's just absolutely destroyed by guilt and, oh my God, I've sinned, I've sinned. And, you know, and the retreats, of course, would focus on um, the sixth and ninth commandment. So, I mean, he's, um, he's just, you know, um, shredded with mm. guilt. But then mm. he meets Nora, who doesn't seem to carry this with for some extraordinary reason. Now, part of it may be, I don't know, maybe the West of Ireland. I think that it, it, this is probably a bit of a stretch, but there were there were different attitudes. The West of Ireland had a kind of was a little wilder in some ways because it, the Celtic um, consciousness lasted so much longer there than it did on the East Coast. And also, when you just think about like say Yeats advising Singh to go to the West of Ireland to discover the true, the true Celtic um, and the true Celtic spirit. And he sent him off to the Aran Islands. Well, the Aran Islands was just, you know, sort of hop, skip and a jump from Galway City. And then there was the Mm -hmm. Gwaltecton. All those areas were very cut off. So I think a lot of that spirit. So, you know, she seems to have, and it may well have been part of the, that kind of the culture that she grew up in and the people that she encountered, that she didn't carry that Jansenistic, you know, Catholic, you know, um, uh, terror of sex and the chaos that it would, it could, uh, it could cause. So yeah. I think that when they met and he realized that this woman is completely at ease in her own body, in her own sexuality. It's just part of herself and it's as natural as breathing. I mean, it must have been an extraordinary discovery. And I think that was a huge connection for them. Yeah, clearly. I mean, he's walking down Nassau Street, uh, 10th of June, 1904, and, and sees her and, uh, and then strikes up a conversation. So he's obviously immediately attracted to her. And I think he's, he's at the time, he knows he's fallen in love, which is very, I mean, I think Stanislaus records this as well. It's a very unusual emotion for the attraction he has to Nora. She stands him up for the first date, but then meets him on, on, the, on the 16th, which becomes Bloomsday. But, you know, she's only six months in Dublin, more or less fled from her family circumstances and a tyrannical uncle, Tommy, yeah. you know. But you're right. She seems to have this inner strength. I mean, you think about her life in the future. You know, she throws her lot in with with a writer uh, who she's never quite convinced he's a genius. I think she says, well, he's the strangest man I've ever met. I'm not sure he's <laughs> yeah, a genius. Yeah. And, and she goes off and you talked about the kind of straight lines. She goes off without marrying him. And effectively, yes. six months in Dublin and, you know, some months later or whatever, heads off out into the wide world without with this character. I mean, she is an extraordinarily free spirit. Yeah. Exactly, exactly. And doesn't tell anybody she's leaving, gets on the boat. He's there, the Aunt Josephine and the father waving him off. Then when the father finds out that 
this Nora Barnacle is actually going with them. I mean, his comment was Barnacle by name and Barnacle by nature. She'll stick with them. She'll stick with them. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, and of course she did. But it was, it was, the thing is, the amazing thing is that each of them recognized in the other somebody that they um that they had been searching for looking for it was like they met their you know in modern terms our life partner but there was something that they were like kindred spirits that recognized each other yeah. and the trust and that and that bond was that bond was unshakable but also the interesting thing is nora had had boyfriends yes. in galway like she was very attractive you know yeah. and to men and women and had this wonderful I mean, I read an interview with the, one of the books about it from a friend of hers. Her, and she, the friend talked about how fabulous it was to hang out with Nora because, and they would do things like one time they got into men's clothing, put their hair up under a hat and walked around Galway and nobody recognised them. They were, you know, they were very kind of free, independent spirits. That was not a usual kind of way to be. No, but, no, that was Ma Mary O'Halloran, I think, was, was yes, her friend who yes. very yeah, fondly yeah, yeah. recalled her. That's right. And they got off to very funny scrapes, you know. Oh, and, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And that yeah. was, and it, was right. it was over it was over a boyfriend, a Protestant boyfriend that the, the uncle, you know, beat her actually with a walking cane. And that's when she decided enough of this, I'm gone. No, you know? Yeah, yeah. 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 But yeah. you know, the, the the other point I think is that Joyce felt a tremendous loneliness after his mother dies, yes. which is, which in a way ends with Nora. And, and this is part of the bond. But he also said when asked, you know, many, many years later, you know, is it what you had in common with Nora that kept you together? And he just scoffed and said, no, of course not. It's what, what was different between us. Because she's not intellectual at all, makes no bones about this. You yeah, know, she's very grounded. Yeah, she may not be an intellectual, but she was a very intelligent woman. Yeah. And she had, I mean, oodles of horse sense. I mean, she was she was grounded. She was the rock and she didn't suffer fools gladly. She was not in awe of him. I mean, he writes to his auntie Josephine at one stage, very dejected. He said he just he just doesn't understand her. She she like she just sees him as a man among men like. Basically, what he said is she doesn't see how exceptional I am, you know, which, she just... yeah, which annoyed him, but probably oh. ultimately fundamentally attracted him. But he was, you know, he was irritated by it very often, yeah. you know. Yeah, you but don't he... recognize my genius because all, <laughs> right. husbands, all husbands feel the same, let me assure you. <laughs> but there's a, he said, there's a wonderful tribute that he made to her. Um, he says, everything that is noble and exalted and deep and true and moving in what I write, I believe comes from you. Now, isn't that the most beautiful tribute that somebody could make? I mean, yeah. he recognized that there was, she had qualities that he, that just, you know, he hugely, hugely respected. Also, she was a wonderful storyteller. She had all these stories about, you know, growing up. And I mean, he was, you know, um, charmed by the stories and mm -hmm. then, the used the uh, her story of um, Michael Fury in uh, dying uh, for love of her, like the the singer who gets just before she's leaving Galway, and she finds out later that he's uh, 
that he's dead. And that whole, and, and of course, what Joyce does with that in The Dead is just so exquisite. But he was haunted by, and he also writes in his letters to the Auntie Josephine that the idea that she, that there were, there were, there were two boyfriends she had that subsequently died, but particularly the Michael Fury character. Sonny Bosman, I think was his name. Just, yeah, yeah. And that she was, and he was also buried in Rahoon, but oh, the Rad is a much nicer, you know, yeah. but it's got much more music uh, to it. But she's, you know, it, it's, um, he was jealous of these dead lovers. And he, he tells this to the Auntie Josephine. Of course, that's another thing about Joyce is the letters that he wrote to like to the Auntie Josephine, yeah. and then later on to um, Harriet Shaw Weaver, he would pour his soul out. He had tremendous ease at talking about his feelings and what was, not just about his writing, you no, but, his life. That, but his life and his concerns and his fears and what was annoying him and what was, what was worrying him or what, you know, and his own um, shortcomings, like in terms of within the family. It was, um, yeah, yeah. He had a tremendous facility to, to connect with, with, the, with, the, with the, and totally trust and saw them as, as equals. Equals, really. Like, yes. You, get that up, you do get that. And even with Nora, he did, he did admire her facility with the language, with, a, with being able to tell stories. He admired her capacity to describe things. And I think he once chided her for, for, for mimicking another kind of tone and borrowing. And he said, no, no, just speak as you do, you know. Um, and, and you get that from people in the West, you know. And I remember my grandmother with had a great turn of phrase. So no matter what it was, I mean, she, her son came with our grandchild and she was saying, oh, stuck to him like a butterfly. And she just rolled these things off, you know, and I could just imagine my granny was kind of from Roscommon, not far. And there is there is that storytelling, that, that understanding of humanity and of life and, and of tales being told and so on, which Nora obviously brought to Joyce. It was like a well almost, you know, but you and mentioned the letters. I mean, I'm looking over Elman's biography and, and when you go... <laughs> I went in the back, the index to look up um, um, Harriet uh, Shaw Weaver. My, the, 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 the index is enormous. And you read these letters that he's writing to Weaver. Now, we should explain, of course, that Harriet Weaver is introduced to Joyce via Ezra Pound. Ezra Pound yeah. is a great advocate for Joyce. I think it's, what is it, 1914 or something or 15? Or maybe is it at 17? Anyway. Yeah, I think it's 14 when she, yeah, when she, yeah, she had taken first, over she, the egoist, yeah. The egoist, the publication, right? Yeah. So she's kind of a, she's a funny mix, Harriet Charles Weaver. She's, she's got money, obviously. She's an editor of the egoist. Very strict upbringing, but a very liberal, libertine kind of approach to modern art, which she was fascinated by. So she becomes his lifelong patron. Uh, extraordinarily generous. But he writes to her these enormous long letters uh, yeah. with real candor. Uh, and you don't get the sense he's just writing to her to keep her happy as a patron. No. He's writing to her as, as a companion, as yeah. a counsellor, you yeah. know. It, yeah, it, it, a confidant. Yeah, exactly. Confidant, exactly, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. In, in, I mean, in another era, we would have called it a therapist. But it's true. And she had tremendous... She, she could... Um, she could talk to him about the problems in his life, but also she would talk to him about what he was writing. She was, I think she is one of, uh, I mean, I, but I describe these women as like 
midwives of Ulysses because in all kinds of different ways they brought it into being. I find her the most extraordinary. I mean, yeah. this Quaker woman, the money it seems came, I uh, just read recently, her grandfather, uh, it came from cotton. He made a fortune in cotton. Oh, and right. she lived a very, very simple life, very, very frugal. And that, and then, but she found, she obviously, like um, in the early days, when she took over the, the egoist, they were publishing chapters of portrait, you know, and then paying him. So of course it was a way that he was making money. Also, it was keeping him, um, uh, writing so because there was he had an outlay he had a place where it was going to be it was going to be well, published. Just, to, just to pause on this for a moment because we have to remember he couldn't find a printer not mind a publisher yeah for a portrait right and she steps in and says which the ego has never did she said why don't we publish her this as essentially our first book yeah um and you have to think and, and it forces him to finish the chapters but he's got a, he's assured it's going to be in print. He finishes the book. Uh, she publishes, it, which is his, his breakthrough in a way. And so in well, a very, very direct way, she is, now, she's obviously got a lot of, he's got other advocates like Pound and Yates and so on. But she takes a very direct role in getting a portrait published. And well, then sends there, were two, there were two steps. The first one is she couldn't get it published in England initially, but there was an American publisher. So she, they sort of um, split the risk. Right. She said she would take 750 copies or whatever. So if this guy printed it, yeah. If he printed it. And then she would take the, the sheets from that and then have it, have it uh, printed in, uh, in England and did the same with, uh, with Dubliners. So that was, that was extraordinary. But then the most amazing thing is she was sending, he suddenly was getting all this money through a solicitor from right. a, an anonymous donor, like 1,500 pounds, which was, you know, a king's amount of money. 5,000 chunks, these huge chunks of money. And then finally he figures out or is told who um, who the the benefactors is, and they but they haven't met at, at, at this time. Right. But she continued to fund that. She bankrolled that family basically all the way through, right all the way through, which is amazing. It seems she was she would cut her own expenses in order that they would have money. She invested a huge chunk, and then he would get like a monthly um, amount and that plus his um, royalties, she thought he would have enough to live on. Of course, she was absolutely astounded when she did finally go to Paris. See how he was saying Lifestyle. <laughs> I mean, the family going out to the best restaurants and they're drinking, which the she could not believe. And the I tipping. I mean, when Joyce had money, there was nobody more flahula. He just, you know, Sure, sure, and sure. Nora used to fight with him because he'd be tipping bellhops yeah. and ushers. <laughs> but again, going back to Weaver, she's this very prudish woman. There was a famous story told of her when she was getting a medical examination in her bedroom. She had to turn all the photographs of the men, including Joyce, to the wall because she didn't want to be <laughs> examined naked with men looking at her. And yet she is prepared to publish what at the time was regarded as essentially obscene publications. And she goes through this extraordinary length to, to get this avant-garde writer published while maintaining this very prim, uh, as you say, frugal uh, lifestyle. I mean, it, yeah, it's but really maybe, I think there were 
two parts. There were two parts of her brain. There was her life and that. But then as as a as a, an editor, published a, a publisher of a magazine, she obviously she had a huge appreciation for modernist writing and yeah. and for um, and certainly for for Joyce's writing. The only thing she didn't that she couldn't wrap her head around was Finnegan's Wake. And I mean, she liked the, the washerwoman scene and the uh, Anna Olivia Plurabella, but the rest she and she made a suggestion once that maybe an annotated edition would be a good idea. Well, I mean that. <laughs> But she was so terrified that she had hurt him or insulted him. Over she goes to Paris to, you know, uh, smoothen things out and make sure that he, you know, she didn't. And she would always, if she felt she'd overstepped the boundaries, she would always try and, you know, and, and um, make things uh, okay again because she was, she did not want to lose that um, that connection uh, with Joyce. And she mm. did try to publish Ulysses. I mean, she went all around to every printer in England. She even went to uh, Virginia Woolf and the Hogarth Press and they just sniffed at it. No, 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 a little too low for them. That but, introduces uh, us to Sylvia Beach, who, who ultimately does publish it. But of course, there are, she's working with, with uh, Weaver as well. But, Sylvia Beach is another woman, in a, in a way, you know, this American expat in Paris, sets up her bookshop, uh, right. Shakespeare and Co., has a relationship with Adrienne Monnier, who is yeah. an independent spirit as well, has, 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 has her own. Has, I think she, her first bookshop inspired Sylvia Beach. But again, uh, absolutely instrumental uh, in getting Ulysses okay. published. It wouldn't have happened without her yeah. intervention. Absolutely not. No. You know, she's going around to this, the Hemingways and 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 the, the, all the writers in Paris at the time, essentially being a publicist and an unpaid PR advocate for Joyce. Joyce almost, in fact, become the leader of the avant-garde literary yes. circle in Paris, yeah. which leads then to USA. So Sylvia Beach, again, you would not have had USA's published, at least in the way that we know it, and with the encouragement that he got without her. Right, because um, Harriet, um, Harriet Weaver had tried in England and had drawn a blank. Then yes. in the States, they had the Little Review, which again was, a, you know, a, an intellectual literary magazine. They had published a number of chapters, including Nausicaa, the one Gertie McDowell on Sandy Manstrand. <laughs> that was too much, too much, too for much them. for the censors. So there were, uh, again, the publishers, two publishers got, were charged with obscenity and lost their case and were fined, I don't know, 50 pounds or 50, $50 or something each. And the publisher that she had set up um, to publish Ulysses in the States, well, that was it. No, yeah. no, no, no publishing. So Joyce comes in crying to Sylvia Beach, it'll never, that's it, that's it. My book will never come out, the end of everything. And then she says, well, would you consider Shakespeare and Company publishing it. Mm. And of course, she was connected to, uh, because being an avant-garde modernist and knowing all of this, there was a publisher in Dijon. So that she knew that she had a connection with and she um, arranged with him that he would publish it. So, okay. I mean, there was, who else would have 
there was nobody else around who would have done it. So heavens knows how long it would have, you know, lain there in the doldrums uh, before being published. So, yeah, she was absolutely. But then she was a good businesswoman because she she said, OK, a thousand copies and we will pre-sell it. Like there will be subscriptions. So as you say, all the rest of them. Um, Bernard Shaw said that <laughs> he wasn't prepared. He described it as a repulsive but accurate picture of Ireland. <laughs> That's right. Shaw was not impressed. Oh, he would. Shaw once once quipped that he said, I didn't throw myself into the battle for life. I threw my mother, which is actually far more accurate of Joyce than it was of him, uh, yeah. funnily enough. But yeah, I, I think that's an important point you make about the timing, though, as well, is that had Ulysses not been published then yes. and had languished for a few years, it, it may have lost its moment. It may have not Absolutely. hit the moment in the way that it did when it was published. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. But then the amazing thing was with all the problems with the publishers, the, the typists, there weren't enough typists, so there was a deadline. They had, he wanted it on his birthday, February 2nd. Um, 1922, it had to come out, and he had this thing about dates, and they were hugely symbolic and, and important to him. But so there weren't typists. Harriet Weaver gets the typist, hires the typist uh, for him. Then he's reading the proofs. Well, he adds on another third of the book while doing the proof. So, of course, that sends everybody into a tailspin. Then, even the cover, he was so particular. He wanted blue, the Grecian blue, with white lettering on it but the first ones there were two green there were two this there were two that so finally they got the they got the the uh, the correct blue now they couldn't do the thousand so by february 2nd the printer could have two he's thought three copies but actually two copies arrived he'd mail them no too risky send them by train and sylvia beach on the morning of february 2nd left her apartment down to the train station by seven o'clock to pick up these two copies back to the Joyce apartment. Um, he uh, inscribes the first one for Nora and Sylvia uh, Beach gets the second one and then back to the shop. And of course, everybody, I mean, it's a huge, big celebration of people coming in. It's finally published. Now, of yeah. course, there are all kinds of mistakes in it and that, but I mean, you've got... French typesetters, you know, with yeah. trying to put a book, you know, trying to print a book like Ulysses. With all the so, I mean, idioms and everything. Yeah. Else. So, I mean, you do, you, <laughs> they, oh, yeah. you do excuse them, but it was, and also it was Sylvia Beach who, she loved the whole idea of celebrating this. And it was she who coined Bloomsday, wow. which I, I hadn't realized. Yeah. No, I didn't know. No, no, no. Interesting. Yeah. But you get a great sense that Sylvia B. And of course, Weaver is getting lists of potential buyers and distributors. Well. That so was, yeah, exactly. they're, like a team, they're like a team around team. him yes. in the same exactly. way as his mother had been. Nora was at home. You know, they're the scaffolding around which uh, he is creating this, this literature. You know? Extraordinary. I mean, he and does say that the women, the women in his life, you know, were enormously instrumental and helpful i mean well you you couldn't but notice how yeah i mean you can't you you also know so much more about joyce through his letters to them i yes. mean for a guy who grew up in a very male environment even as i said the tone of the family uh household was very male you know his father's a very male character he's 
he loves the horse racing and the gambling and the drinking and singing and the carousing. Yeah. You know, and when Joyce goes to his own carousing, it's all boys in a way. And yet, uh, you go back to that point, he treats women as equals. You know, he's yeah. writing to them, he's, 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 he's explaining himself to them, he's complaining to them, but he's also looking for their approval. He was quite hurt that yes. Weaver didn't like Finnegan's Wake. Yeah. And he's constantly going, and of course, he's constantly trying to win their approval. I mean, he's also getting them to do things for him in the sense of like, Josephine is asked to explore corners of Dublin and contribute to the, I mean, he's got them all kind of working for him. But there is that, again, that egalitarianism comes through. He understands that he needs them and he treats them as equals. I mean, it's quite extraordinary when you read these letters, the degree to which he needs them, that, that in the same way as he needed his mother, he needs this support. And if, it's almost impossible to read his life and imagine his success without any of these women. They are truly enablers because they're, they're taking a guy who is untested, who is doing some extraordinary stuff. They're taking a, it's a very courageous, intellectually very courageous for them. Yeah. 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 No, it is. It's absolutely amazing when you think that this number of people would actually cross his path, but he said to somebody once that, that he said, I don't know if he said chance plays a big part in my life. He said, it's a, he said, I'm like the guy who walks along and hits his foot against something and looks down and sees it's exactly what he needs. Right. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Almost, but, it's almost it, in, 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 uh, like an intuitive thing of who is going to. I mean, I don't know. Is it fair? I often thought about that. Just the idea of, say, himself and Nora, like Nora's outside Finn's hotel. He's walking down the street. There's no way that they would ever encounter each other socially. That would not no, have happened. Just the idea that at that particular moment, she's out, he comes down, she thinks he's a Norwegian sailor. They they talk and and you know what I mean? It's like, yeah. what are the chances? Like, what yeah. are the chances? What are the chances that he'd have an aunt like Aunt Josephine, who would do all this research? Even he'd ask her the most extraordinary things like, could you go to Seven Eckler Street and just see if somebody could climb over the railing and just drop down two or three feet to open the door? as Bloom did you know and yeah. like it was and then he'd ask her about people in Dublin he said just get out a sheet of fool's cap and anything that you remember just write it down it doesn't matter just put it all down put everything down and then just post it to me yeah Which because he's 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 tapping into their memories he's he's, yes. he's like um he's like a detective it's not that it's not that he's right in a way he's not writing fiction for him he's oh, not no, writing no, fiction. no 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 you no know, he's not making this up no, you know, in, no. A, in at one level, you know, um, and so these women are providing this material for him, and of course he's got Nora talking at home to him, and he's absorbing all of this. Yes. Now he does have a, a tragedy then with Lucia, uh, his daughter, and and he he has he's got enormous respect for her, uh, and and he really does refuse to believe that she has mental problems. Yeah. And 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 and, and I think it does lead to tension with uh, Harriet Shaw uh, Weaver. But just on, on Lucia, that is a very, very, there's a lot, that's where his life turns dark when eventually she is clearly suffering from schizophrenia and so on, you know, uh, a very tough time for him. And he also, he also sees himself in Lucia, like they had a, they had an incredibly strong bond and I, mm -hmm. he talks, he, he sees and I think there's also a certain amount of guilt because I think he he sees a lot of himself in her. Somebody, I think it was he she actually went to see Carl Jung. Yeah. 
And um, I don't know if it's Carl Jung or one, some other therapist that, um, uh, that saw her said that she has a similar temperament to her father, but she doesn't have the genius. And I think Carl Jung actually thought that Joyce, she was diagnosed as schizophrenic, which he completely refused to believe. But so I think it was Carl Jung that said, uh, Joyce is more than likely schizophrenic, but he's also a genius. So it's like you get away or it's, you know. Um, yeah, in other words, Joyce, Joyce's mind could contain the ferocity of his talent in a way that maybe his daughter couldn't. That she's yes. easily talented, but more fragile in a way and therefore not able to contain it in, in a sense. Yeah, and she did her dancing. She would dance like there were three years where she... Um, uh, she was dancing and she was like a very modernistic. I mean, she really, mm. people really respected when she did finally give her concert, you know, in that funny silver kind of fish suit that she designed mm. for herself on that and this extraordinary music and movement and that she, I mean, she was obviously incredibly creative, but mm. she couldn't, you know, she, um, I think she only ever gave one huge big concert and then you know was suffering all kinds of delusions and then the whole business with Samuel Beckett when she yeah. became obsessed with him and fantasized that the reason he was coming to the house was to see her and then I mean that caused a huge um split between uh, Beckett and Joyce which was you know really unfortunate yeah. but yeah. uh yeah when you step back then, of course, Molly, Molly Bloom is the kind of the, the kind of the apex, as it were, um, and, and Joyce in, in the soliloquy. I mean, the only thing we hear from from um, from Molly at the beginning of, of, of Ulysses is I think it's MN. Mm, she's he's, he's shouting up to her in the bed, but she's in the bed. Don't see her at all through the rest of Ulysses. I mean, she is kind of the Penelope character, although obviously she's an unfaithful Penelope in the book but just you might talk a little bit about who are the women who are informing um, Joyce to create this character of Molly I mean clearly Nora Nora rejected the comparison she said I wasn't as fat as she was but she but clearly it it is it is Nora but it's Nora plus yeah but also there's no way that he could have written Molly I, I mean without the fact that Nora had obviously bared her soul to him and mm-hmm. I mean so that through Nora he kind of understood what a woman was or certainly mm-hmm. what Nora was and you can also hear her her rhythms the same way as you can hear her rhythms in in Greta and you and in Anna Olivia Plurabella that Galway that beautiful Galway music that they have in their in their um in their voice you can hear but I also think too that because um because Nora grew up in the west of Ireland, and as I say, that was kind of the heart, and particularly around Galway and that Gaeltacht, mm-hmm. and all of that mishmash that would happen in Galway. That there was a really strong sense of the Celtic consciousness, and in the west coast, traditions like the whole thing of Bridget as as fertility goddess and all of that lasted much much longer. And one of the reasons I can say that is because um, my mother grew up in Mayo in the 20s and 30s, and she was from a a little townland called Holywell, which was the Holy Well of St. Bridget. And on the 1st of um, February in Bullock, the first day of spring, St. Bridget's Day, the women from the farms would collect around the well and they would drink from it. 
And then they would take some of that water back. And this was, they would, um, but then the Christian part of it came in where they would circle around and say a decade of the rosary. But they would also, but they would pray for things like a good harvest. They would pray the, the women who are pregnant that would have, you know, it was always, it was about, it was very rooted in um, uh, Bridget as the ancient Celtic goddess. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. which you know had been and then was later was later uh, christianized but so i think that there are elements of um uh, i think there are elements of that that whole tradition of bridget and woman as strong as as um as goddess as life force powerful mm -hmm. um i think that is part of what was in Nora and part of what probably came out of that uh, Celtic tradition. And you do hear it in, in um, you, I'm, when you look for it in Molly, it's there, it's very, very strong. It's like the, the, the fertility goddess dealing with, uh, with birth and um, uh, uh, breastfeeding. And also the ancient Bridget, the, the Celtic mm -hmm. goddess, was associated with the cow, as lots of ancient, like yeah. Isis yeah, and, yeah. and all of those were. Um, so there is a section in, um, um, in the Molly soliloquy that, um, that talks about this, that I think where you can actually see a connection between the ancient um, the ancient goddess um, Bridget and Molly and Nora, that mm -hmm. um, which I can. No, please do. Read for you, yeah. Please do. Okay. I wonder was Boylan satisfied with me. One thing I didn't like was him slapping me behind go away in the hall, though I laughed. I'm not a horse or an ass, am I? I think he made them a bit firmer sucking them like that so long. He made me thirsty. Titties, he calls them. Stiff the nipple gets for the least thing. They're supposed to represent beauty placed up there like those statues in the museum. Are they so beautiful? Of course, compared with what a man looks like with his two bags full and his other thing hanging down out here, or sticking up at you like a half rack. No wonder they cover it with a cabbage leaf. I had a great breast of milk with Millie. Enough for two. I had to get him to suck them, they were so hard. He said it was sweeter and thicker than cows. Then he wanted to milk me into the tea. Oh, he's beyond everything. I declare somebody ought to put him in the budget. <laughs> so that was, so that is one um, uh, section where, you know, you are, and she even sees herself like one of those statues in, in the museum. But it, it also expresses how a woman cannot escape her body. You know, yes. that she is, she is the, 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 she is the, 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 the fertile bed for birth. She has a womb. Yes, yes. You know, new people come out of her. You know, she's her period once a month. She's got lactating breasts, you know. I mean, in a way, what she's, she is embracing the fact that a woman is ultimately and intimately connected with her body in a way that a man can kind of ignore his body. You yes. know, that, that he yes. can kind of, 
it, his body doesn't make the demands of his psyche that a body does of a woman because she's obviously very conscious of her life cycle in a way that a man isn't, you know, her fertile life cycle, um, that it will come to an end, her, you know, period of kind of sexual um, uh, to, uh, um, fruitfulness as it were. But yeah, so Molly captures all of that in a way that is unabashed, and totally then, commonsensical, and in a way celebratory, you know? But she's also puzzled by it in a way, like, are we that beautiful? Yeah, yeah. yeah. You know? but, she's, but again, she's very aware of being part of the great rhythm of life. The same way as Anne Olivia's like flows into the Liffey that then, you know, will go up and will become cloud, will become rain and we go, it's this great big cycle Circular. of life that she's, yeah. that, she's, uh, that she's part of. But also there is another section where um, Molly is, this is kind of almost like pure Bridget where like the goddess Bridget is associated with plants and growth and healing herbs and nature. And there's yeah. even now, St. Bridget's Garden in Uchtarat outside Galway, which I just heard about. Right. Anyway, this is this is this is is Molly. I love flowers. I'd love to have the whole place swimming in roses. God in heaven, there's nothing like nature. The wild mountains, then the sea and the waves rushing, then the beautiful country with the fields of oats and wheat and all kinds of things and all the fine cattle going about that would do your heart good to see. Rivers and lakes and flowers, all sorts of shapes and smells and colors. Nature it is. As for them saying there's no God, I wouldn't give a snap of me two fingers for all their learn. Why don't they go and create something? I often asked him atheists, or whatever they call themselves, go and wash the cobbles off themselves first. Who was the first person in the universe before there was anybody that made it all? Who? Ha! That they don't know. Neither do I. So there you are. <laughs> they might as well try to stop the sun from shining tomorrow. The sun shines, he said. The day we were lying among the rhododendrons on Holt Head, in the grey tweed suit and the straw hat. The day I got him to propose to me, yes. Okay, we'll end it there. Yeah, it's great because I, I've, I've, been, I've just finished reading Circa by uh, Stephanie Miller, which is a retelling of, of that story. And when you read the Iliad and the Greek tales, you do have these extraordinarily powerful women. Joyce is very taken with uh, with Athena, for example, and and so he's very aware that the Greek cycle on which he's essentially basing Ulysses is full of goddesses uh, and of witches and 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 herbal medicines and and that kind of yeah. thing, which, as you suggest, and I think quite rightly, he picks up in a kind of its raw Celtic form from Nora and her stories and of Bridget and of that pre-Christian. Gaelic society, because Gaelic yes. Ireland up until the fifth century, uh, yep. certainly throughout the Iron Age, mimics and mirrors the classical ancient Greece. We know that from the time, we know it from uh, the, the Breton law traps and so on. So in a way, right. Nora and Molly are, are, are Joyce's way of connecting 
that circle because he's very familiar with the church, the masculine church. He's a big fan of Thomas Aquinas. He knows all right. about the scholastics. Yeah. Kind of highbrow metaphysical world. And yet it's through Nora and women that ground him, but also then, as you suggest, connect him to this mythological view of the world, which is rooted in flowers and herbs and nature. And where is, where is Molly at her most powerful? It's lying amongst the flowers, which of course famously Joyce didn't actually like flowers, but she's situated. That's her world yeah. in a sense. You know? yeah. Yeah. And I got him to marry me, you know? And then ending the book on a yes. It's mm. like yes to life, to the life force, to which, you know, and it's so perfect that it's Molly, who is kind of like a, a Mother Earth, um, that she says yes to life. It's just, it's a beautiful way to, you know, to end. And also, it's kind of, um, it's beyond, it transcends the conventional religions it's like it's bigger than or is it it, it it includes all of them and is bigger than all of them and, and we know that Joyce put a lot of thought into that because he had this squabble with the French translator who and, and they were back and forth on this and the French translator wanted, wanted to say uh, je veux uh, oui je veux oui and he can and, and there was a back and forth and eventually of course they agree yes it has to say because Joyce always said, yes, it's a female word. It's the word of women. Yes. yes you know, yeah. so it's a very conscious way of, of bringing it back to a woman we don't really hear at the beginning of the book, but dominates it because you mentioned Blazes Boylan. Well, and we should say this, Bloom is wandering around Dublin in a way avoiding going home because he knows his wife oh, is going to have an assignation, an affair with Blazes yeah. Boylan. And yet he's incredibly tolerant of this. He's, he's, yeah. I mean, the word was used complacent. I don't think it's complacent. It's almost, okay. it's, it's, it's his understanding of human nature. He doesn't really hold it against her. He's almost, it's almost ingratitude that he lives his life with this woman. And if she needs an affair, he's going to put up with it. You know, yeah. even, yeah. even in the, on the morning of the day that he knows she's going to be placed by it, he's asking her, what do you like for breakfast? Right. Yeah, I think he doesn't, also, I mean, because there's, you know, a sexual relationship ended with the death of Rudy and things changed between them, then there is, but so, I mean, there may be some guilt on his part, but he also, I think, doesn't feel threatened by Blaze's boiling. The same mm. way as Joyce, totally, apart from the one incident where he felt, you know, when he went back to Ireland first and Cosgrave, the friend, tried to tell Joyce that, oh, well, Nora was with you when, you know, you were dating every second night. Well, who, who do you think she was with all the other nights? That was me, you know, and totally try, almost destroyed him. And of course, Joyce writes all these, you know, all of these, these letters. But, but at once that was over and that was, there was never any question after that, but there was total um, um, uh, trust. But Joyce was aware that men found uh, Nora very attractive oh, yeah. and he, you know it, it's he he kind of I don't know titillated him in a way well, I, think he, I think he did yeah I mean the the, the, the dead is based on him kind of almost deliberately getting himself worked up about this memory of the dead the the dead yeah. uh Sonny Bodkin and so on he almost wants to sharpen his feelings for 
Nora by imagining right. yes. Uh, yes. her yeah. infidelity. Yeah. But of course, in reality, he was annoyed by what he described as her indifference. Of all our characteristics, the indifference <laughs> is what kind of got him, you know, that you really don't care all that much, do you? You know, it's, it's, it's this kind of search for, yes, I do, yes, I do. And of course, she's not going to give it to him, which I think at the end he kind of admires. And then the marriage is not all straight sailing. I mean, she does storm off at one point back to Ireland during the, yeah. the, the end of the, during the Civil War. But she's no sooner gone than he's writing her beseeching letters. Yes. You know, and, oh, yeah. And he can't do yeah, whatever. Yeah, yeah. He know? couldn't, no. And even when, later on, when um, she was in hospital, um, she had cancer and uh, she was having surgery, he couldn't to be separated and go home to the empty apartment without her. So he had them, you know, bring in a bed and he, for the whole duration of her hospital stay, he slept in the bed beside her in the hospital ward. Yeah. yeah. You know? Yeah. It was no, he was they were totally, totally devoted to each other. You know, you wonder, don't you, what would have it Joyce? I mean, it's total speculation, but if they hadn't actually met, what you know what influence or how would that have changed Joyce, his life, what he wrote about, what like what it's I mean it's you know, you could sit well, and talk about it all day. You can, but I think, I mean, well, first of all, you know, for a man, there are not many decisions he freely makes. I mean, basically, the wife you pick and the house you buy are probably the two most independent. After that, most things are contingent on something else. So the real stroke of genius for Joyce is spotting Nora, immediately seeing she's the woman for me, That's when it. nobody else really saw it. Nobody else did. I mean, here is, you know, she's... She's um, clearly got a lot of a lot of characteristics, but none that you would say were the classic characteristics of an admirable woman in those in that society. You know, the 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 well-educated, prim. Yeah. Uh, you know, um, you know, good for sewing and singing and piano. You know, that's he found something. He's looking for something else, and he finds it. Uh, but you're right. I mean, what if he didn't? Um, it's hard to imagine. Joyce coping with life and being able to write the books he wrote without all of that support that he was getting, you know, the money from Harriet, Harriet uh, uh, Shaw yeah. Weaver, uh, the support and the opportunity to get published by her and by Sylvia Beach, you know, Nora at home holding things together, um, you know, the support he got from his aunt, you know, and the grounding and stability he got from his mother, his mother. which he was never going to yeah. get from his father, you know. Yeah. Um, and it's not to denigrate the father, but who gives them all of these stories, this lore, this history when oh, they were gosh. around Dublin. But it's almost impossible to imagine Joyce being enabled to do what he did without these very powerful women in his life. Yeah, yeah. And the great, the great miracle is that he found what he needed. That mm. it was it, it all, you know, in some wonderfully miraculous kind of way the people that he needed um, came and then you know even like in Paris when he's supposed to go there for six months and they arrive and then there's the whole Sylvia Beach and Shakespeare and company and then um, you know Ezra Pound who promoted him all over the place and so he's introduced to all these influential people like and the critics so therefore even when his books come out they know who to send it to who will do reviews of his books that will I mean it was, ex I mean, mm. he was extraordinarily mm. blessed in his life. Well, he was, but I think we have to bring it back to the fact that whatever Joyce had, 
people saw it. They reckoned. So, I, yeah, mean, they, they I mean, he, it's not as yeah. if you get any great sense of why they were impressed with him, because the way they're impressed with him is that they know this guy has an extraordinary mind, that he is an extraordinary figure, in the same way as his mother and father recognized it. Yes. In the yeah. same way, even though, uh, you know, Harriet Shaw Weaver saw it in his writing and, of course, heard it from Pound as well and wanted to be part of a avant-garde movement and one of the world's greatest yeah. writers. But they clearly all saw something in Joyce, or Joyce was able to share something of himself in that unpretentious way, the direct way that he had. So they clearly saw something in him. Yeah, 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 yeah. Mm-hmm. And yeah, and enormous, uh, enormous respect from. And also too, it seems he was actually wonderful company. I mean, when he had a few drinks and he'd sing and all the rest of it, that he was, you know, he he had he had a very charming side as well. You well, that uh, brings us back. It brings us back to Dublin in a way because you know Joyce's writings—they're not about Paris. They're not about Trieste. They're not about Zurich. It's about Dublin. And when you see those early scenes in his life where they're playing piano and they're singing songs and telling stories, you know, I, it reminds me of my uncles who were able to stand up and sing a song. Uh, you know, wonderful tenor voices and so on. That Joyce ultimately never left. Never left that Dublin at all. No. Never left that that milieu of of um, of family and friends. But it was interesting that at the end of uh, Elman's uh, biography, he says, you know, the two things that were the the twin kind of the twin pillars of Joyce's life were his writing and his family. And his family, yeah. And yet, in a way, maybe Elman should have added his friends too, and the supporters like. Harry Shaw Weaver and Sylvia Beach and his Aunt Josephine. That is wider than family. Yes, but I mean, I think maybe that is, you know, the other side, the flip side of genius or whatever. There was, there was a sense that, a sense of entitlement to some degree that, I mean, he, uh, he never, like he was shameless in asking mm. for, for, I mean, you know, in asking for help and expecting help. And I think there was something... You see it a bit in George Bernard Shaw as well, like the mother going out, you know, not exactly scrubbing floors, but you know what I mean? Like, keep because there's a total belief and maybe it comes with genius or this need to express and whoever has to help or whoever has to facilitate it, so be it. But this must be, this, this must be stated. And yeah. so I think that because he, he could be very, um, ungrateful to a lot of people that helped like to Harriet Weaver Shaw he could be very cruel in some of the things yeah it didn't end well no Even though she was the executor she looked after Lucia yes he was very cool with her at the end it did, yes. they did eventually yeah. fall apart yeah you know. and he, he's with most of the people that were and then also with Sylvia Beach yeah. when he you know the the rights were sold to Random House and I mean, it had a huge impact on her life because now suddenly she isn't getting, you know, all of this money from sales. I mean, yes, she did get, she got some small percentage of of royalties, but she was so generous. I mean, she gave him 66% of the royalties on that first batch. I mean, which is beyond generous. But um, so there was that. I mean, yes, you can understand as a writer, of course he wants bigger and better and get it out there and all the rest of it but she struggled like really 
afterwards. And uh, but the lovely thing was, I mean, there are two things he would always remember. It seems on February 2nd, he would she would receive a plant from him just as a thank you. But also Weaver. 19. I know. Oh, sorry. Yeah. Sylvia um, Beach. Sylvia Beach yeah. Would, yeah. And then in 1954, when um, uh, Michael Scott, an architect, bought the Martello Tower and gave it to, you know, um, Ireland that as a museum. So it was opened in 1954 and Sylvia Beach was invited as guest of honour. And it made it was hugely important to her. And she was, you know, she was given all the accolades and all the credit that she hadn't really been given before. And particularly for it to happen in Dublin with, you know, all of these um, all of these people, some um, of whom uh, would have known Joyce. And it she died later that year. But it seems it was it was something that she wrote about, talked about and was enormously grateful that it happened so it did that was that was a lovely ending to her uh, her contribution you know yeah. no and I think that's a, a nice point for us to end too that finally she did get that recognition and yeah. the fact that we're we're talking about it today I think uh, it, they probably haven't been recognized enough uh, over the decades actually when you, when no you I no I I agree I don't think so it's it's yeah. like yes I mean as, as a writer and Ulysses is an absolutely extraordinary book, but mm-hmm. that you can read again and again and again, and just the levels and layers. And the amazing thing is that one consciousness could contain all of this. All of that, yeah. And then turn it into like a really, you know, compelling story. And then all these characters that are in there. I mean, I think there is a PhD thesis in all the characters in, all of those because they're so individualistic in terms of the way they speak what they talk about how they look and that hundreds of them like no it's, it's extraordinary because in a way it, it it does something that history can't do which is to bring people in Dublin alive and it, and yeah. it is stood the test of time I mean it's still a hundred years later you know it's still avant-garde it still has never yes. been really repeated and no. in a way it's such a masterpiece. You wonder how any Irish writer has the nerve to, to, to start <laughs> anything, you know. But uh, yeah, and I think we should say that you know the it is accessible in in the sense of you know there are so many guides. In fact, my my colleague Dan Hall has just written a reader's guide to Ulysses. There's there are other ones out there too. Yeah, um, there's them. Um, yeah, Colleen. You know, yeah. People shouldn't be afraid of it. Uh, you know, this is the hundred. It's a great time now to start reading the book. Um, and there are plenty of supports out there, but also for the great attraction is that it is so immersive. It is such a pleasure and not to be afraid of it. Yes, exactly. And I also think, too, another one of the reasons why it does, it has lasted is that, yes, it is about Dublin, but it is about cities. It just encapsulates mm-hmm. what it is to live in a city. And I think anybody and let's face it, most of the world is now living in, you know, in cities. So it just that the interconnectedness, the, you know, sort of like the wandering rocks where all these lives kiss, cross and all that whole thing is, I mean, it's, it's, yeah, it's astonishing. On some yeah, which, is, which is very nice because in, in Irish history and Irish society, we've never really known what to do with cities. You know, Dublin is not core to our national identity in the way that Paris is to France or Berlin to Germany or London to England. Right. You know, and yet Joyce takes Dublin and gives it its due prominence in a way that other commentators and other disciplines have never done. They've minimized, in a sense, the role of Dublin. And Joyce takes it and polishes it into this 
piece of literature, you know? Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. great. Well, listen, Mary, that was fantastic. Really enjoyed that. Your readings were beautiful. Uh, oh, thank you. And uh, I'm glad the way you wove in Bridget, who's a, a very powerful uh, character in Irish history, and rightly, I think, becoming an icon for, for women today and, and yes. being celebrated, if not quite with the same prominence as St. Patrick, but getting up there. So we have yes. a much nicer balance between the patriarchal and, and the female. Force, Absolutely. You know? Absolutely. Um, yeah. So it's, it's, uh, I love the way you brought the, the kind of Bridget into the story of Molly via, via Nora. I think that's a, a really great contribution to the celebration of St. Bridget's Day. And uh, of course, there's a lot of other um, panel discussions and, and events going on around that, which is great to see, you know. But listen, Mary, thanks again. We look forward to maybe another chat closer to Bloomsday for the 100th anniversary. Okay. We're sure we'll be doing something together. And okay. uh, yeah, yeah. great to chat with you. Okay, thank you. <laughs>